Amen. Is this working? We're through. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Um, it's really good to see you all, especially if this is your, if this is your first time or if you're relatively new. A massive, massive welcome to Revelation Church. Um, I'm going to be speaking for the next 30 minutes or so from the, from the Bible. I'm going to be continuing a teaching series that we've been doing for, well, the last few months, and we're going to be going all the way up until, I think, July um, in this book called The Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, um, which is an interesting book. Um, it's, it's a poem. That's what, it, that's what it is. We're spending a few months in a poem, and a poem that's kind of a love song between a man and a woman. You read it, and you think, okay, this is like, a lot of imagery and poetry to do with uh, love between a man and a woman. And so you might, just by hearing that, if you're new, you might think, why on earth are you guys spending about six months doing a series on a love song between a man and a woman when you're meant to be a church that is about God, surely? Why spend six months doing that? And the reason we're doing that is because for pretty much the whole of church history, um, and even beforehand, when, um, before, before the coming of Jesus and um, when it was the, the Jewish nation, Israel, um, worshipping God, it, the, this book was seen as an allegory of the relationship between God and his people, of, as a, almost as a picture of the relationship between God and his people, or between Jesus and the church. Now, just to illustrate, if you heard the word allegory and thought, what do you mean by that? An allegory is basically when you've got a story that has got a surface meaning, but actually it's communicating something far deeper. So a silly example that I think I've given before, which will make Dave Smith laugh because of the way I pronounce it. Oh, he's out. Oh, what a shame. Um, you, can have particular, you can have fables or stories which use animals to represent different virtues. So, for example, you might have an owl, which I pronounced correctly there. Dave Smith thinks I say owl. Owl, an owl to represent wisdom. You might have a fox to represent cunning, cunningness or a snake to represent being cunning. Um, so that, that's the kind of idea that can go on in an allegory. You're reading the passage. On one level, it's talking about a relationship between a man and a woman. But on another level, it's a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, between God and his people, between Jesus and his bride, who if you are in Christ today, if you've been baptized into Christ, you are a part of that bride collectively. Um, and so that's why we're looking at it. So it's a really, really important book. And what we're hoping and praying that God does is that as we go through this book, we become more and more comfortable with being romanced by God. What I mean by that is we become more and more comfortable with the idea that God lavishes his love on us and that we can speak to God in a candid, honest way about the love that we feel for him. And that becomes a, a non-embarrassing thing to do. It's not the kind of thing that we kind of stand there in a very British way going, I, I love you, Jesus. This, this feels weird as a man. We can come to Jesus and say, I love you with all of my heart, with all of my mind, soul, and strength. And that's just normal. That's what Christian life should be like. And today we're looking at a passage that describes a wedding. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to open to Song of Songs, uh, chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses one, uh, sorry, 6 to 11. And um, we're looking at a passage that describes a wedding, a wedding between, on the surface of it, Solomon and his bride. But actually today isn't actually a sermon about weddings or about marriage, or at least not about human weddings and human marriage. That's not actually what this sermon really is about, because the Bible teaches that marriage isn't actually an end in itself. Marriage and weddings are signposts. So if you, before we kind of go a bit deeper, if you're driving around the M25 and you see a signpost to some, somewhere relatively nice to go. Let's say a signpost to Bristol or something rather than somewhere like Slough. And you think, okay, how do, how do you, you honour that signpost? 
What do you do to, to basically use that signpost in a correct way? Do you get out of the car, pitch a tent next to the signpost whilst there's cars going past at 70 miles an hour, take a photo of it, like have selfies in front of it? Yeah, we found the signpost to Bristol. That's not the way you honour a signpost. The way you honour a signpost is by going where it points, assuming you're wanting to go to Bristol, obviously. That's how you deal with signposts. You don't make signposts the end goal. That would be a really weird holiday album. Just pictures of you in front of these signposts. Yeah, look, look at where we could have gone. That's not what, how signposts work. And that's, that's kind of the point I'm trying to get across with marriage. And obviously there is a huge difference between a, a signpost on a road and a marriage. I'm aware of that. But the illustration still stands in the sense that the Bible teaches that marriage is not primarily about a marriage between a husband and a wife. It's primarily about being a picture of Christ and the church. My marriage with Bex is not fundamentally about us. It's about him. And actually, no, we could make it about us, but fundamentally, that doesn't change the fact that it is a signpost to him. And so we could, we could make it a really bad signpost, but it's still fundamentally a signpost. It's pointing to something bigger. Marriage points to Christ and the church. And actually, the climax of history is a wedding. The climax of history is a wedding. And it's the wedding that every single earthly wedding points to. I'm the kind of guy who cries at weddings, which those of you who've heard me preach for will not find that difficult to believe. I cry at weddings. And yet, part of it is because I get emotional when there's love between a a bride and a bridegroom, and there's all that, that joy going on. But I think the reason I cry at weddings mainly is because I know I'm watching a parable. I'm watching a picture of what will happen one day. And take the best wedding you've ever been to, probably your own if you're married, hopefully, and um, <laughs> multiply that by infinity. You, that's what we're talking about, the final day where Christ and his church are reunited, are brought together, and will dwell f- forever together for eternity. So that's why I cry at weddings um, in part, um, and partly I just get emotional at various times for (laughs) no explicable reason. But um, today's called Wedding Preparations. That's the title I've given um, today. Um, So because one of the main points is that the age that we currently live in before the return of Jesus is an age of wedding preparation. It's an age where actually we are living, preparing for the ultimate wedding. And for those of you who have been involved in preparing weddings, whether actually that was your own wedding or helping someone else, you'll realize that the wedding preparation isn't the end goal. You don't spend your life in perpetual wedding preparation. It would be fun to start with for a very limited amount of time. And you would get to a point where you think, I just want to get married now. And that's Actually, I mean, that was, that was how, we, how we felt when we were preparing for our wedding. I mean, to be honest, Bex was so busy work-wise that she probably didn't have the time for that. But I, I ended up managing to get a bit of time off work. And towards the end, I was kind of going through this to-do list thinking, I just want to get married now. Because wedding preparations are not a good perpetual state of existence. They're aiming somewhere. And the world and age that we currently live in as Christians is an age of wedding preparations, which means there will be joy. Because actually preparing for a wedding is lots of fun. But there will also be a sense of longing. A sense of going, this is going somewhere, and I know this is not all that there is. That's the way we should feel as Christians. So that's why this is called wedding preparations. And so the application today, really, if you want a kind of blanket application for everyone, regardless of your circumstance, is to make sure that we are living preparing for that wedding. 
and making our lives about that marriage, about that future day. And so that's for all. It's for all, everyone here. Whether you're married, whether you're unmarried, whether you have been married, whether you will be married, it's for everyone. Because actually, as the bride of Christ, we will collectively be married. And that is the most important wedding. So actually, whether you are single or married here, that does not influence how applicable this passage and this whole book is to you. Because ultimately, it's all about that wedding that we are all part of and that we are all involved in. And whether we are married or whether we live our whole lives single um, for Jesus, we are both, all of us are pointing and preparing for that day, that wedding. So we're going to read Song of Songs, verses, um, so chapter 3, verses 6 to 11, and then we're going to pick out some stuff that we can learn from it. So here we go. So chapter 3, verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness? like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it's the litter, which is kind of like a couch that you get carried on, of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon has made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He has made its posts of silver its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid by, with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. This is the word of the Lord. So just before we jump into the passage, a quick kind of disclaimer to make about allegories. You will notice as we go through this that I often... I often say that we can see ourselves in multiple people in this passage. That's because allegories are not always, they're not straightforward stories always. Often you will see yourself in multiple different characters. Within reason, you will see yourself in multiple different characters in this story. And that's right. Because the way this passage works is not necessarily a one-to-one representation. It's not like, okay, I am one of the 60 mighty men and you are one of the daughters of Zion. Actually, we're both in this passage and so just bear with me as we do that. So don't get confused if you think, wait a minute, I thought, we, I thought you just said that we should be like the 60 mighty men, and now you're saying we should be like the daughters of Zion. Who are we? That's just the way that allegory and imagery often works. So just be aware of that. And actually, in the wedding of Christ and his church, we are primarily the bride, but we are also invited as guests. You read different parts of actually different parts of revelation which talks about this a lot and in certain places it talks about the church as being invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and other places it talks about the church being the bride that's the way imagery works it's not always as 2d as reality would be so let's dig in are you guys up for that good okay you're still with me so let's have a look versus before we look into these different individual sections i'm just going to reread them to make sure that we've got we're soaked in the actual passage itself and um, not just what I'm going to say about it. So verses 6 to 8 we're going to look at first. What is this? Coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it's the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. So if we look at verse 6, those of you who know kind of your Bible stories a little bit, do you notice, did you notice any imagery in verse 6 that reminds you of another story in the Bible? I'll give you a bit of a clue. Wilderness, columns of smoke. Any stories that jump out? Yeah? 
What have we got? The Exodus. Yeah, so the Exodus, which is kind of, if you want to read about it, it's in Exodus 1 to 15. It's the second book of the Bible. Um, And this is where God's people are set free from slavery in Egypt, and they go into the wilderness, and God guides them around the wilderness with a pillar of fire by night and and a column of cloud or smoke by day. And so they're walking around the wilderness with the end goal being that they end up in the promised land. So that's, that's often the way, if, if you're kind of listening, thinking, how do we make sure that if we're reading this as an allegory, we don't just end up reading whatever we want into this? One way to go around that is to think, what other biblical theme or biblical story does this particular picture point to? And that will often guard us against going too crazy. So what we've got here, I think, is a reference back to Israel being in the wilderness, waiting to come into the promised land. Notice that they're coming out of the wilderness in this passage. What's this coming out, up from the wilderness? So this person is writing and is kind of picturing themselves looking, thinking there's something coming out. I can see the wilderness over there. There's something coming out, and it looks like a column of smoke and perfume and frankincense. This is God's people coming out of the wilderness, which was the end goal for Israel. Again, as with wedding preparations, it would be odd to be in a perpetual cycle of wedding preparations. It would also have been odd if God's people had been perpetually in the wilderness. Now, they were there for 40 years through their own fault, but their end goal was that they would eventually enter the promised land. And we're actually, as a church, or as the church worldwide, we can see ourselves in this. Because the age that we currently live in is a little bit like being in the wilderness. In fact, that's a picture that the New Testament uses to talk about this current age. It's an age where God is with us just like God was with the Israelites in the wilderness. God's presence is with us by his spirit. There's joy, there's delight in the fact that God's presence is with us and guiding us and that we know where he's taking us or we know that it's worth following him wherever he takes us. But we also know that this isn't the promised land. This isn't the end goal. There's a day where we're going to come up out of the wilderness, where the wedding preparations will be over, where the wilderness period will be over, And so that means that this life will be marked out by joy as Christians. It should be. It will be marked out by joy in knowing God's presence with us in the present, in actually in seeing people healed. The amazing story, I can't remember who it was, um, someone shared earlier about having their their ankle healed. Amazing. I think it was Abby, wasn't it? Yeah. Amazing story of God healing. That's, That's what we expect to see. But we also expect that this life will be filled with trials and difficulties because we're in the wilderness. And I know for some of you, you will be going through horrifically difficult circumstances at the moment. Some of you, it might be health issues. You think, goodness me, I don't know what to do with this. Some of you, it might be relational breakdown. It might be the loss of loved ones. It might be just that you just can't see where your life is going and that you You thought God was taking you one place and now something else has happened and you're confused. We're living in the wilderness, which means we know that God's presence is with us. But we also know that there's a day coming where we won't be in the wilderness anymore, where the wedding preparations will be over. So that's the life. That's the life we're living currently. And so if you're here today and you're thinking, I I feel the weight of that kind of sense of, oh my goodness, when is it over? Keep heart. Don't lose heart. It will be over one day. We will come out of the wilderness one day. And we will finish wedding preparations and be married collectively to our bridegroom. It will finish. There will be a day, and I'm going to go into that in a bit more detail later, there will be a day 
where death is just a, where pain is a memory, death is just a memory, sin is no more. Misquoted the song, but with the one we sung earlier, that amazing song. When we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and sin is no more, it's, it's that's what we're going to look forward to. But for those of us who actually, I find this a temptation. I kind of fluctuate between the two. And another temptation is to get really comfortable in the present age. And I think, you know what? I could, I could get used to this. I could get used to kind of nice middle-class life. I could have a decent job, retire, maybe retire a bit early and just do, have, have a nice time in life. And the challenge for us when we're in that particular mindset is don't get comfortable. Don't get comfortable in the wilderness. Don't lose heart in the wilderness, but don't get comfortable in the wilderness. Don't lose heart whilst you're in wedding preparations, but don't get comfortable in them. Don't be perpetually wedding preparing and thinking, hey, I love preparing for a wedding. What are you preparing for? I don't know, but it's great fun. That's not the way we're meant to live. We want to live with our eyes fixed on that future. So let's not get too comfortable, but let's not lose heart. And you will know today which of those two, if, if not both at the same time, apply to you in the moment. Whether you think, actually, I want to fix my eyes on that future day, or you know what, I want to, God, would you please teach me to desire that day more than I desire anything on earth? To desire that day where I finally see you face to face more than anything that I have in this present life. So we're in the wilderness. And if we're in the wilderness, how are we meant to live? So how, how are you meant to live when you're preparing for a wedding or when you're in the wilderness? And verses 6 to 7, which we, we read out, kind of give us a bit of a clue. Because if you notice, God's people, or at least this whole group of people, are coming out of the wilderness around King Solomon. So you've got King Solomon is carried on this thing called a litter, where you've probably seen it in, in films and so on, where there's kings or royalty, they're carried on this kind of bed that they lie on, and he's surrounded by lots and lots of people. The king is at the center of God's people here. And I think this is a lesson for us about how we live in the wilderness. We live with Christ right at the center. We live putting Jesus right at the center of everything, right from the most mundane decision in life. Where, where do I move? What do I do with my life? What job should I take? I don't mean that means you necessarily have to kind of wait for a direct word from God for every decision you make. But you make every decision thinking, does this put God first? Is this putting Christ at the center of my life? Is this showing that Christ is the one that I desire above all things? Or is it showing that I am the one that I desire above all things? Let's put Christ at the center. And what you find as you do that is you start smelling of Jesus. You start doing things that people look at and think, that looks like Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul says he, he's a guy who went around preaching the gospel to thousands of people, seeing, seeing thousands of people saved. And he said, we are the aroma of Christ. So we, when we talk or when we act, it's like people can smell. They think, what's that smell? And people think, that smells like Jesus. And some people hate it and some people love it. But it smells like Jesus. You know when you've spent, I think Goff gave, um, was it Clive, I think, gave this illustration. He said when you spend a lot of time with someone who's wearing perfume, you end up smelling of them eventually. When you spend time with Jesus, you end up smelling of him. See, not literally, but you, you act like the way he acts. And there are, there are so many examples in, in this church of people who smell like Christ in the way that they act. I mean, so many examples of, I mean, people sacrificially serving week in, week out on a Sunday. 
And the guys who, are, who will not be listening to this at the moment, who are in kids' work or in creche, who voluntarily say, you know, I, I will happily be out of a sermon once every three or once every four weeks in order to take care of the, the kids and the creche, in order to teach them about Jesus. That's smelling of Christ. It's serving one another. I know that so many... I mean, we've, we've felt so served over the last few weeks, but a number of you have brought meals around. We've just had a, just had a little baby, and um, it's been amazing having having you guys bringing food. We've smelt the aroma of Christ and some very nice meals as well in the process. When we see, when there's stories of people, in fact, story, there are people sat here who are here today who know Jesus because one of you smelt of Christ to them. You shared the gospel with them. You said, here's what Christ has done in my life. Can I share him with you? And there are people who are sat here today who now know Jesus because of that. That's what it means to live in the wilderness. It means to live with Christ right at the center of everything. And there's another, another quick thing to mention is, have you noticed those guys who were around Solomon? They look pretty tough. They all had swords. And obviously the sword is often a picture that's used for God's word in the Bible, whether it's the word that he speaks directly or whether actually a way of referring to this, to the scriptures. And a way, and a, a way of starting to smell more and more like Christ is also to spend time immersing ourselves in the scriptures. And I don't mean necessarily becoming academic Bible scholars. That's not what it means to immerse yourself in the scriptures. Actually, what I mean is day in, day out, meditating, thinking on the good stuff that there is in here. This is God's word to us. This is bread, in a sense. We, we feed off of it. We, and the Holy Spirit meets with us as we do that. If you want to kind of... Think a little bit more about that. We recorded the last um, Hot Topics on the scriptures. So there's a video up on the Rev YouTube channel, or you can check the podcast. It will be on there, just if you want to think a bit more practically about how to do that. But let, let's be people who, kind of, who immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Because as we do that, what you'll find is you start looking at life differently. You start seeing life in the way that God sees life. And you start smelling of Christ. The perfume of Christ, the aroma of Christ starts suddenly being much more pervasive in your life so let's be people who do that and also the word of god is often linked with prayer in ephesians 6 actually and i gotta say this this is an area where i i always feel like i have to battle um battle through but um i i know that prayer has done so much good to me in my life and has made a difference to situations that i've prayed about and so i make it a priority to get up early on a tuesday morning and to get along to the prayer meeting and I realize for some of you, job-wise, you wouldn't be able to get there at seven because your job starts at seven. But I know for many of us, it's a sacrifice, but a sacrifice we can make that is worth it because we spend time with other believers. We spend time praying for each other. We spend time praying for the lost, praying for this city. And as we do that, the aroma of Christ starts sticking to us more and more. So let's, let's be a church that immerses ourselves in the scripture, that immerses ourselves in prayer, that puts Christ right at the center. So that's what it, I think a few lessons we can get from this passage about what it looks like to live in the wilderness. Let's move on to verses 9 to 10 now. And uh, this is where King Solomon enters. So, so far we've just had this procession, um, the litter of Solomon coming along, and now we get a kind of zoom on to King Solomon himself. So verses 9 to 10, King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. I didn't get carried into my wedding on a, on a couch or on a carriage. Okay? That's not the normal thing that would tend to happen for most people. 
In fact, you, I mean, it's usually, the bride is the, is the big deal on the, on the wedding day. The groom doesn't get carried in. But actually, this is because Solomon is royalty. This is not your standard wedding. This is not, the, this is not your average marriage day. This is a royal occasion. This is where, so think back to royal weddings that you've seen in your own life. So one a few years ago, it's huge. I mean, it's gigantic, and there's this massive procession going on. And here what we've got is King Solomon being carried in by his people on a, kind of on a throne. He's on a, on a couch. This speaks of royalty. This is, this is a royal occasion. This is a royal wedding, and this is appointed to Jesus because there's a day coming where Jesus will return in splendor, in royal, glorious splendor. And he's going to return, and he won't, it seems, return, be returning on a couch. If anything, it looks like he's going to be returning on a, on a horse. But he's going to be returning, and every eye will see, and no one's going to be looking at it thinking, ah, oh, that's your average second coming. Yes. Everyone's going to be looking, going, and they're falling f- flat on their faces, going, this guy is in control here. This guy's in charge. And it's his wedding day now. This is a pointer to Jesus returning in glory. You've got Solomon here, he's carried on this... On this couch, he's made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. And I just, I just love the fact that whether or not this is something that is meant to be in the passage, it's true, or whether it's something that we now see in light of the gospel, that Jesus, before he was able to return in glory, had a different wooden instrument. The glorious cedar here speaks of royalty, but there's another wooden instrument that Jesus was lifted on before he was able to return in glory. So Solomon arrives here at his wedding in full royal splendor. That's appointed to Jesus returning. But we know that unlike Solomon, Jesus had to be lifted up on a different wooden instrument in order for him to then return. He needed to redeem and ransom his bride before he was then able to return in glory at the end of time. It's amazing. We know the main event is yet to come, but we know also that it's secure because of what he did at the cross. We've got a guarantee that because he was lifted on a wooden instrument, in a sense, he will again be lifted, but in glory this time, as he returns on the clouds from heaven and as he comes back to marry his bride. It's amazing. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he amazing? And we're going to move on to verse 11 now, which talks about looking, beholding Jesus. Because I think when you, when you suddenly realize what Jesus has done for for you and how amazing he is. You think, I, I want to look at him. I want to behold him. I want to put him right at the center of everything I've done because he's so amazing. He's so amazing that he laid down his life. This God who rightfully could have immediately just gone, you know what, I'm just going to return in glory now and wipe out everyone who's disobeyed me, which would have included all of us, says, actually, I am going to choose to be lifted. In fact, I'm going to choose to become a human being. Just let that sink in for a while. I'm going to choose to become a human being. And as a human being, I'm going to be lifted up, attached by nails on a wooden instrument so that I can buy back my people, so that I can buy my bride back for myself, so I can pay the penalty for her sins, so that I can destroy the works of evil that are stopping humanity coming to know me. And then I will return back this time not to deal with sin, but to come back and marry my bride and put all wrongs right. Doesn't that make you want to look at Jesus? Doesn't that make you want to behold him? Well, let's read verse 11. Because here we see ourselves as the daughters of Zion in this verse. 
Go out, a daughter of Zion, which is a way of talking about the people of Israel in this context. Zion was a hill in Jerusalem. But we kind of see ourselves as the daughters of Zion in this passage. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. There's a lot of looking that goes on at weddings. I don't know if you've noticed. Okay? The bride looks at the groom. The groom looks at the bride and usually starts crying. The guests look at the bride and will from time to time look at the groom to make sure he is crying. There's lots of looking that goes on. Everyone's kind of looking. It's, 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 there's a lot of looking and beholding that goes on. And obviously at the centre of that is the bride and the groom beholding each other. The groom kind of just in bits are like astounded at the beauty of the bride that he's about to marry and the bride looking down and, and so happy that, that she gets to marry her beloved There's a lot of looking that goes on, and we are invited to look at Jesus in this passage. We're invited to look at Christ, to look at him, and we've done a bit of that today already. In fact, we've done quite a lot of it. We've sung songs of praise to him. We've filled our minds with the truths of the gospel. That's why we sing songs that have got so much truth in them. If we spent the whole of Sunday, right from start to end, singing, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, with no more information, that's great. We're adoring him. But we're not, filling our, we're not beholding him by filling our minds with what he's done. How amazing he is. How beautiful he is. How glorious he is. That's why we sing so many songs that are filled with truth from the scriptures. We can look at Christ by meditating on scripture as well. Like I mentioned earlier, immersing ourselves in the scriptures. By being filled with the Holy Spirit. By asking God to help us and to come and fill us with his Holy Spirit. To give us the eyes. Obviously, not phys- we're not physically looking at Jesus in this age. But we're, it's kind of like spiritually we are beholding him, looking at him. And actually, that is an activity that transforms us. It might sound weird, but if we want to put the next scripture up. This is, again, I referred to Paul earlier. This is the Apostle Paul. And he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, I don't know how this works, but as we look at Jesus, as we behold him, as we praise him, as we fill our minds with who he is, as we are filled with the Spirit, as we listen to his voice speaking to us, it transforms us. And we grow from one degree of glory to another. another. The trajectory of the Christian life is upwards. If you zoom in, it's kind of a bit more like that, but it's upwards. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we spend time together as a community, in in gospel communities, on Sundays, encouraging one another, reminding each other of who Jesus is, spending time reminding ourselves as, as housemates and flatmates or as spouses, reminding ourselves of the truths of the gospel, praying for each other. We are beholding Jesus and the whole time we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Just a, a helpful exercise is look back at your life since you have become a believer. That might be years and years ago. Now, obviously, without this isn't necessarily, this isn't necessarily something that's proud, but you can look back at it and think, I can see how I've grown. I can see how Jesus has done stuff in me as I've looked at him, where now I, 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 I can see that, yeah, if you zoom in, there's ups and downs, but actually the general trajectory is that I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. That's an encouraging thing to do with your life. And if you've just become a believer... In a few months' time, look back and see what Jesus has done. Remember the things that he has done for you. And as we do that, we are being transformed 
until that final day where in the present we do not yet see him physically. But on that final day, we will see him face to face. We're going to see him face to face. Imagine what that's like. Imagine what's that. I mean, I, I got to see Bex face to face a lot during the preparations for our wedding. There's a slightly different dynamic that goes on with Jesus. The seeing face to face in the present isn't the same as it will be on that day. At the moment, we see, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, like, a, like through a glass, dimly. You kind of like, I, I can see him, but I know I'm not getting the full picture yet. On that day, the glass will be broken, the skies will be opened, and we will see him as he is. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. The longing will be over. That sense of, I just want to be married now, is going to be over because we'll be out of the wilderness. Wedding preparations will be over and we will be with him forever. It's going to be absolutely glorious. It's going to be amazing. And so, like I said at the beginning, the general application as we look at this passage and some of the lessons that come out is let's make this marriage the focus of our life. That's kind of, that applies to everyone, regardless of your marital status, whether you are single, married, have been married in the past, whether you're engaged, this marriage should be the focus of our lives. But kind of to dig in a bit more, those of you who are married here, or those of you who are engaged and going to be married, don't make the signpost the real thing. Don't make the signpost to Bristol on the M25, obviously times a thousand because marriage is so much more glorious than that don't make that the destination your marriage is a signpost to jesus whether you like it or not the question is are you going to make it a signpost that actually really points to him gloriously so make jesus the center of your marriage and actually knowing that your marriage is a signpost will give you a stronger marriage because that's what it's designed to be when you do the thing that you were created to be you're always going to be doing better and so make the main thing the main thing in your marriage, which actually, like I said, makes your marriage stronger. It makes your love forever grow more and more because you know fundamentally it's pointing to something far greater. Your spouse cannot give you the joy that your heart truly longs for. Only Jesus can give you that. And so let's make our marriages, those of us who are married, about pointing to that final day. And we will have glorious marriages in this church. Those of you who are unmarried and who want to marry, there'll be a, a number of you here today who, who say, you know, I'm not married, but I really, I really want to get married. And that's great. That's brilliant. It's a good thing to desire. But the same thing applies. Don't make the signpost the real thing. Don't make your life about getting married. Don't do that. And, and this, is, this is in no way a reflection on the state of our marriage whatsoever. It, it's, it's not the real thing. Marriage is not the thing that you fundamentally long for. You long for him returning. And so if you're single and you want to be married, which is absolutely great, get a big picture vision of marriage. Go into marriage thinking, I want to go into this knowing that I'm pointing to Christ and the church. And you will, And if and when you get married, you will have a great marriage crew that will be built on that principle. And actually, there, there may be a number of you here who are listening thinking, well, I'm single, but actually, I'm, either I've made the decision or I'm wondering, I, I, I feel like I might actually want to live my whole life single in order to be able to be wholeheartedly and single-mindedly devoted to Jesus. And if that's you, that is a very, very good thing. And in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that in this age, those who remain unmarried 
because they want to have absolutely no distractions to be focused on, on Jesus will actually do better. That's not my opinion. That's just what Paul says in that passage. And so if that's you, I, I want to encourage you in that. If you're thinking, you know what, I think this is for me. I, I, I feel God has given me the grace to remain single for my whole life, to be content in that state and to wholeheartedly follow him without the um, no, I don't, distraction. You know what I mean by that. I couldn't find the, the appropriate word of the, the, care, that, the, the care and the worry of thinking, but I've got a family, I've got... If that's you, that is a really, really good thing. And I, wanna, I just want to honour you if that, is, if that is the case and encourage you. And I want to say that that in a, in, a, in a different way points to the reality of the marriage between Christ and the church. Because what that shows is the wholehearted devotion of the church to Jesus. In your decision to say, I am intentionally going to give up the possibility of being married or the, the, the um, likelihood of getting married and focus fully on Jesus, that actually points in a very different way to the marriage of Christ and the church by the church being wholeheartedly devoted. So there we go. Those of us who are believers, I suppose those would be a few ways in which this could practically apply. But for those of, us, those of you who are here today and you think, actually, I'm not a believer. I've not made my life about following Jesus. I haven't uh, decided to be baptized into Christ and to follow him. Then there's an invitation to the wedding that, that I'm offering today. Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin. And the question is, are you going to accept that invitation and say, Jesus, I'm all about you. I'm all about following you. I want to follow you. I want to lay my life down, lay all of my other preferences down because I know that you are worth it. And if that's you and you're, whether you're, you feel like you're all the way there yet or whether you think, you know what, there's just a few things you said today that started tugging me and I want to find out more, then I would love to talk to you after and chat to you. Or if you, would, if you want to talk to someone who... Well, um, who you came along with today or talk to one of the elders, to Steph or Rich, then we would love to talk to you and pray with you and just help you on this journey towards finding out whether do you want to follow Jesus. But that, there's the invitation there. There's the invitation to be there at the, at the wedding feast and to be part of the bride. But for all of us who are believers in Christ, we're going to respond. And here's how we're going to do it. We're gonna, if the band could come up, that would be, that would be great. We're going to respond by... Beholding Jesus in worship, we're going to come on, come on to that in a few minutes. We're going to behold Jesus, but we're going to fix our eyes on the future as well. And what I'd like us to do is to, if, if, we wouldn't, if we'd be able to all stand for this, we're going to all together read a passage of scripture out that speaks of the wedding, uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're all going to read it out. And then what we're going to do is we're all going to go and take communion, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're going to do that as a way of pointing towards that final day. Jesus spoke to his disciples when he took the Lord's Supper with them. And he says, I will not drink the fruit of um, the vine again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of my father. In other words, I'm not, I'm not going to take this meal with you again until it's on that wedding day. And as we take the bread and drink the wine now, in part, it's a pointer towards the fact that Christ is coming back and we will have a feast, a wedding feast with him, and we will be with him forever. So if I can just ask that you don't spend time praying for each other as you do that, because what we do, we'll all do that, and then we're going to come back together, and we're going to sing a song together of fixing our eyes on the future and beholding Christ. So we've got Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, up on the screen. So let's all read this out together. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude 
like the roar of many waters. These are the true words of God. Amazing. Let's, let's all come and let's come to the table and let's take bread and wine. Let's take communion. If you're in Christ, if you're not a believer, just sit this one out. This is a, a Christian meal. But those of us who know Jesus, let's take bread and wine together. Remember that he is coming back. And let's gather back together in a, in a minute or so to celebrate the fact that he's coming back.